Combo Nation. We're really here, man. Another episode for your earphones, your AirPods, car, wherever you tune in to Combo's Court. Let me say it again. Combo Nation. <laughs> what up? What up? What up, everyone? Welcome to episode 298. You heard that right. Episode 298 of Combo's Court. And I am Combo. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't already, punch down on that subscribe button. Today's show is part one of my conversation with Matt Peck, co-host of the Locked On Bulls podcast. We talk current Bulls basketball, their off-season moves, and more. You can find Matt on Twitter at Bulls underscore Peck. That's B-U-L-L-S underscore P-E-C-K. You know you can find me on Instagram at 1-2-Combo. That's O-N-E-T-W-O. C-O-M-B-O, intro music by Luca Beats. Let's get into it. Luca, don't do it to him. Matt Peck, co-host of the Locked On Bulls podcast. Welcome to Combos Court, man. How are you feeling today? I'm great, Andrew. Appreciate you having me on. Anytime. It's great to have you on because I think the Bulls are right now one of the most interesting teams in the NBA. I'd say the Warriors are up there, the Sixers, because everything that's going on with Ben Simmons. The Lakers and the Nets, of course, for obvious reasons. But it's really good to have you on to talk about such an interesting basketball team. Yeah, it's been a long time since the Bulls have been this interesting in the offseason uh, or, or even in season. I, I think a lot of people think there is a huge uh, gap of the best the Bulls could be this upcoming season and the worst they could be. Some people think that the offseason moves they made could put them into the fight for a top four seed and, you know, first first round home court in the East. And some people think that despite the additions of Lonzo and DeRozan and all these pieces, they're still going to be fighting to avoid that play in tournament in the East. So, I do see a significant jump in their win total this upcoming season compared to just lottery after lottery after lottery the past years, the failed Jimmy Butler rebuild. But it's just really interesting and exciting to have a Bulls team and a Bulls front office that's finally making moves for once. You mentioned the front office, and it's obvious there's been a complete overhaul of the roster. What other impact has this new front office made? I think the biggest impact beyond just having guys that are willing to go out and make those moves is they have already started to shift the image of this Bulls organization across the league because towards the back end of Gar Foreman and John Paxson's regime for a multitude of reasons and players that had left the organization either via trades or in free agency had some not so nice things to say about the organization and the way they treated their players, the way they treated their staff. They, they dealt with the, I call him he who must not be named, but the most recent former head coach that I know you're talking about, you know who I'm talking about, the yep. way that the coaching staff treats the players. They have a front office that has moles in the locker room and it's, it, it's spies and, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. They, Arturis and Eversley, they have come in and in less than two years already shifted the public perception of this organization and how it's run. Zach Levine saying positive things about, 
they they asked me about the coaching search. They asked me who I want to play with. They asked me my opinions and all these things. And for the first time in a long time, you see big name free agents like Lonzo Ball, like DeMar DeRozan, actually choose to come play in Chicago. That is a huge shift yeah. from that past regime. And then the other big difference to me is the fact that this new Bulls front office executed not one, not, not two, not three, but four sign and trade deals, some of which included multiple teams in the span of one single offseason. The previous regime could not contemplate how sign and trades worked. You never got any sign and trades. When they did execute trades, they usually came out on the losing end of them. That's another big shift that has this organization heading in the right direction. You got a front office that actually knows what they're doing and how to put themselves in position to succeed based on the rules of the National Basketball Association. Is there anything good you could say about the job that Mr. Boylan did with the Bulls? I mean, I don't want to be mean, but no. I Wow. I, I, I have I have nothing negative to say about the man as an individual. I right. spent some time with Jim Boylan when I was doing my postgame show for NBC for a couple of years. He is a nice man, um, but I do not think that he did any good for any of the players in that organization. And from some of the stories I've heard, he was a problem for a lot of people in the organization, not just the players, but team staff, people that worked in the meal room, people throughout that organization did not like him and were relieved to see him go. So no, I really don't have anything nice to say about what Jim Boylan did positively for that organization while he was their head coach. Okay. I want to shift to Olympic Zach because there's some that feel that it wasn't anything outstanding. It wasn't anything spectacular, but I would say that he did a lot of the things that people that some people were skeptical about him. Like he did a great job of playing off the ball. His defense have seemed to improve, especially from a team defensive standpoint. How excited are you to see him maybe bring some of that to the bulls? Extremely excited. I, I think you even had to give Zach some credit last NBA season for improving yes. at least, at least his on ball defense got significantly better. And on a nightly basis, he appeared to be more engaged and was making plays on the defensive end. Did he still get lost and caught, you know, ball watching when he was guarding off the ball? Yes, that's still a problem with Zach's defense. But watching those games in, in the Tokyo Olympics, you saw he was so engaged on the defensive end, and he was creating a lot of transition opportunities for Team USA. And he mentioned it in that Greg Popovich, Steve Kerr, that whole staff said to Zach, look, we got a, a lot of scoring on this roster, and – Look for your opportunities to score when you can, but we want you to primarily focus on setting the tone for us defensively, which good for them for presenting that challenge to Zach and good for Zach to, for, for rising to that challenge because his defense, I thought, was a, a, a difference maker in some of their games after the, the, the bumpy start through, through group play and so, some of those exhibition losses. As they went on their streak of wins through the elimination rounds and won gold, I thought Zach's de uh, defense was a difference maker. So if he can bring that same focus and energy to this upcoming bowl season, I think it'll help the team. And the other thing that I think is a reason you will see that is because welcome DeMar DeRozan. Welcome a full season and, and building chemistry with you know Nikola Vucevic. The, some of the offensive pressure and burden is going to be lifted off of Zach Levine this season. He's not going to be asked to score 40 a night, so he's going to have more energy to put on improving his defensive effort and his defensive skills on that side of the court. I do think you can see an even bigger step from Zach on the defensive end this season. Yeah, you mentioned Vucevic, 
And you mentioned DeMar, who I'm most excited to see him play with is Lonzo because I feel like they could weave in and out of playing on the ball, off the ball. And we know how Lonzo is as a defender and an improved shooter. And that mm-hmm. with Zach, who's now plays, seems to be able to play better off the ball and his improving defense. I think that could be really interesting, that dynamic between them two. Yeah, when you did get glimpses of Zach playing off the ball last season, if it was Kobe running the offense or, or whatever else was going on, he is lethal off the ball. I mean, his, his catch and shoot percentages are through the roof. And you know, just go back and watch some of the tape from last season. It, it, it backs up the numbers. Zach in that off ball opportunities, not only as a catch and shoot three point threat, but as a guy cutting off the ball, he also had some of the most impressive stats in the league as far as his deadliness when he was cutting off the ball and making backdoor cuts and cuts to the basket. You're going to see more of that because not only Lonzo Ball and his ability to, to make some, some, some reads and break down defenses with his passing ability, he's not like a true you know Chris Paul-type half-court offensive point guard, but he does have some solid playmaking. And DeMar DeRozan on top of Lonzo. You saw him really add that playmaking element to his game in his couple of seasons with San Antonio. He's coming off a season where he averaged nearly seven assists per game, and, and DeRozan has gotten really good at breaking down and picking apart defenses. So both Lonzo and DeMar's presence, when they are sharing the floor with Zach, and Zach's allowed to just kind of roam and operate off the ball a little bit and not be forced to create either his own shot or a shot for one of his teammates every possession down the floor – Zach's off the ball is going to be deadly this season. Um, I remember there was some talk about the analytic department didn't really want guys shooting the mid range. Has the analytic department changed or uh, what's going on with that? And I've always been, and I, I, I come from a player's perspective, but I always, I always defended the analytic community because I think they watch a lot more film than people think uh, people think it's only the numbers. So I always defend them, but I just wanted to know where they stand in that department now. Right. Well, so in the old regime, and you saw it in the 1920 season, Jim's final season as the head coach, where it was egregious. It it was almost laughable the ways in which you would see the Bulls pass up opportunities in the paint because, well, it's not a layup or a dunk and it's not a three-pointer, so I'm not allowed to shoot right now. I mean, he brainwashed the Bulls into thinking – it's the way I always said it was it seems like he's coaching – basketball analytics for dummies. Like he read the book, basketball analytics for dummies. He got the bare bones of how it works and said, you get a dunk or a layup or you shoot a three and nothing in between. And it ruined, I think, significant uh, players games. Like you, like instead of blossoming and adding to his offensive arsenal, Wendell Carter Jr. That 1920 season never even looked at the rim when he had the basketball in his hands. Because I think yeah. he had no confidence in his three-point game, and he did not have the size or the skill set to bang bodies down low. So he was a fairly confident mid-range shooter, and Jim said, you're not allowed to do that. Same thing with Kobe White, a rookie who was very lethal for North Carolina in his collegiate career, operating in the mid-range. And he said, yeah, I came here to training camp, and they said, you're not allowed to do that. So, look, I, I do believe that there is something in those analytics But the way I've always thought about it is if you are a player who is a star caliber player and operating and scoring at a highly efficient rate in that mid-range area is something that works for you, then we can, you know, put the analytics on the back burner for now, whether it's DeMar DeRozan, whether it's what you saw Chris Paul and or Devin Booker doing in their run to the the, the finals this summer, players who are deadly in mid-range 
should still take mid-range shots. And that's something that Zach Levine has said time and again when he was asked about it by, by Bulls reporters in the media saying, so your coach hates mid-range. And Zach's like, whatever. I, I am very confident taking and making mid-range shots. So other than don't take a bad mid-range shot right. early in the early in the shot clock, if you're a star player who's confident taking those those shots, and I mean DeMar Rosen's true shooting percentage, having you know no three-pointers essentially as a part of that true shooting percentage, he is wildly efficient. So anytime DeMar has a look that he's comfortable with in the mid-range, fire away. That's how I see it. Most definitely. You don't want guys to take long spot up twos, obviously, but you do need your best players to get in the mid range when the shot clock is running down, when teams are in drop coverage and knock that down. Like you just Mm -hmm. need your best. It's just important for your best players to be able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. It's another layer and another element to the game. And look, the Bulls lost a lot of really close games last season, uh, some of which they probably should have won. But I think a lot of those games, they lost close games because other than Zach Levine, trying to create his own shot, uh, you know, dealing with some turnover issues. Nobody else on that squad could take their, could, could create their own shot and the space to create their own shot. Adding DeMar DeRozan, I think, is going to improve the Bulls' chances of winning more close games this season. Because guess what? DeMar yeah. can break down his defender off the dribble and rise and even hit a contested mid-range shot. But if it's in those final minutes of a game where the game has slowed down, Teams have both ratcheted up their defensive intensity for the final three or four minutes, and you're trying to get stops and you're trying to get scores. You need a dude who can just rise and make a mid-range shot because sometimes that's the best look you're going to get. Yeah, the defense listens to analytics as well. They don't want you shoot at the three. They don't want you shoot at the right. layup, and you're, you're going to get those twos. Um, Laurie Marketing, I feel like he is now a high-variance guy. I think he could turn out to be a really great player in the NBA or maybe fizzle out. Um, I don't know your opinion on that. I think he has a lot of promise, and there's definitely something there with him. Obviously, the defense is an issue, but he has a great skill set for his size when it comes to the offensive side of the ball. How do you think he will end up playing with Cleveland, and how do you feel the Bulls made out in all of this? Well, I was a believer in Lowry after watching his rookie year. I I thought he was going to be special after his rookie year. And then even, yeah, he missed some games his second season due to injury, but he improved his numbers from year one to year two, pretty much across the board. His sophomore season in the NBA, he averaged almost 19 and nine. And he appeared to be on that trajectory. Uh, More injuries and and nagging injuries kept him off the floor. He couldn't get in a groove. But again, like I said, with Wendell Carter Jr. and Kobe White, I think Jim Boylan's offense did not help him. At all. That final, you know, that final yeah. season under Jim, he just turned into a guy who was roaming the perimeter. He, he, he just looked so disengaged most nights. You would see nights where, wait, Lowry only put up eight shots tonight or Lowry only put up seven shots tonight. He just seemed completely disengaged and disinterested because of what he was relegated to being on the offensive end. I hope that with a fresh start, <clears throat> pardon me, he can get back to some of those other ways that he is deadly offensively, whether it be actually using that size of his to take advantage of mismatches, uh, you know, when he gets somebody smaller, a smaller wing or a guard switched onto him, and the part of his offensive game that's always been deadly to me outside of his three-point shooting is making you know, cuts off the ball. I think he is very good and underrated making cuts off the ball. So as far as how it works out in Cleveland – it's kind of weird that they gave Jared Allen all that money and then drafted Evan Mobley with a lottery pick 
and then signed Lowry to this big contract. I think a lot of people are fairly raising an eyebrow to say, how are these pieces all going to mesh together? I mean, with Jared Allen's rim protection uh, and his interior presence, pairing him with Lowry actually makes a fair amount of sense, at least, you know, from, from where I'm standing, because Lowry allows you to stretch the floor. You can play sort of a two towers thing with him and Allen and let Allen make up for Lowry's deficiencies on the defensive end of the ball. But mm-hmm. with, with, you know, uh, drafting another big with that high of a pick right now, maybe they're thinking he's more of a project. They're going to bring Mobley off the bench. I'm not sure how they're going to work that. But as far as how the Bulls came out of that trade, I, I mean, I think it's a steal. The, the fact that you had a disgruntled and wanting a new start, restricted free agent who, yeah, we after reports, we heard that there were multiple teams interested but it didn't seem like multiple teams would be willing to shell out that kind of money and that kind of draft capital for Lowry. I mean, we'll see when that pick from Portland conveys. If they don't trade Damian Lillard away, there's a decent chance that pick conveys next season if Portland makes their way to the playoffs. And you add Derek Jones Jr. on an expiring deal, adding some depth to the wing position where the Bulls could have used some more depth. Maybe you can get away with playing him some minutes at the small ball four position as well. And you, and you also stash another second round pick. And we know how much Arturis Karnaschovas loves to hit on his second round pick. So I think the Bulls got a great haul for a player who was the last domino standing at the end of free agency. Everybody had spent all their money and Lowry was sitting here with no home. So the Bulls knew they had leverage, used that leverage and got what I saw as a pretty darn good return for a player who wanted to be somewhere else. So he was the seventh pick overall, and I still think he could be great with his offensive skill set, but it did fail with the Bulls. Do you feel it was more him or more the coaching staff? I think there's plenty of blame to go around. As I was saying, I think part of the problem is Lowry not asserting himself enough. Hey, you know, if, if you only took eight shots tonight, when most people here believe you should be taking closer to 12 or 15, That's partly on you. However, players like Lowry, I think, could also very much benefit from a true above average to excellent point guard. And that is something he never had in all of his seasons with the Bulls. The Bulls have not had a point guard who can make Lowry marketing into the best version of what he can be on the offensive side of the ball. That part is not Lowry's fault. The fact that he never got to play with an above average point guard or dare I say even a somewhat competent point guard uh, as far as the NBA level is concerned. I I do have some sympathy for Lowry in that regard because that is not his fault. And Jim Boylan is not Lowry's fault. And Lowry is not the only person, as, as I mentioned, who suffered from Jim Boylan and his dumbed down analytics for dummy style of offense that they were running. (laughs) Oh, man. So, I mean, we talked a lot about some of the offseason moves here. ESPN didn't grade the offseason that high. (laughs) I think it was somewhere in the C level. Not sure if it was Mm -hmm. minus plus or a straight C. Um, How would you grade the offseason? And are there any moves we haven't talked about that you were really happy about? So as far as other moves that we hadn't touched on, yeah, I love the Alex Caruso move. Yes. When you think about how bad the Bulls' uh, point of attack defense was last season, I think Caruso should and will play at least 20 minutes tonight off the bench. Caruso, Caruso is just a great story. Like from what he came from, being on the fringes of the NBA in the G League, and to right. the deal that he got now, it's, it's just great. 
Yeah, I so I thought he was a great low-key signing. The fact that the Bulls were able to steal him away from the Lakers on what I think is a pretty team-friendly deal for everything that Caruso could do for you, especially when you needed some of that defensive punch in your backcourt. And then as far as the overall grade, look, I've been a Bulls fan for 30 some years and I've seen obviously the good with the tail, you know, with the dynasty of the nineties. And I've seen the dark times. These have been some dark times recently. The, the signings themselves make sense. When you think about this front office evaluating after one season, what do we have and what do we need? What are we good at? What are we bad at? And every single signing, you can point to the logic behind it and say, they signed DeMar to take some of the offensive pressure off of Zach and add another playmaker and, yep. you know, a guy that can get to the free throw line. The Bulls were the worst free throw attempts per game team in the NBA last season. Caruso with his defense, Lonzo with his length on the perimeter, his defense and his playmaking ability. The fact that, as you mentioned, played a little bit more off the ball his last season in, the, in New Orleans and is yet another three point threat for this Bulls starting five. All of the additions made sense. And then, a level above that, not only do these additions make sense, but they're all players that wanted to come play here. And they got done some fairly complicated sign-and-trade deals. All of that is stuff that would not happen under the previous regime. And we know that. that that's not just a, a disgruntled and salty person who's covered the Bulls for years and, and wanted them to be better. We know that, that the previous regime never pulled off anything as massive and as complex as what they have done this summer with all of these deals, adding all of this talent and doing it in a way that is convincing players across the league. Hey, Chicago might be a cool place to play again because it wasn't for a really, really long time. Yeah. I think DJJ was a great roster move as well. I think there's an underrated thing that goes on with X heat players. And I mean, I don't know if he's the most vocal guy. don't know him personally, but he, Culture is a real thing. And if you could get more guys like that in your locker room, I think it's really important. Yeah. You know, he played, it kind of depended. And you, you know, Eric Spolster loves to change up his rotation based on matchups. He, he's a chess master like that. So when they made their run to the finals in the bubble in 2020, he was more heavily featured in some playoff series compared to others, but he was a big piece of that team for whatever reason or reasons. It didn't quite work out with his stint in Portland, but I think he is going to be a player, and that's another thing that I am liking about this new front office and the players that they're getting. They overhauled this entire roster. Other than Zach Levine and Kobe White, the roster they inherited is completely different. Zach and Kobe is the only two that remain from when they took this job in the spring of uh, in the spring of 2020. And they have, I mean, gotten not only good locker room guys like Derek Joe Jr., but guys who can play in multiple positions do do a lot of different things because the bulls of the past had built a, a roster with a lot of one-way players and a lot of players who could do one thing well, but everything else, they were mediocre at best, if not subpar. Derek Jones Jr. I mentioned you can play him some minutes at the four. You can play him at the wing. He gives you depth at both of those positions. We know that Billy Donovan loves to play three guard lineup. So you could probably expect to see a fair amount of, whatever combinations of Zach Levine, Colby White when he comes back healthy, Caruso, Lonzo, playing DeRozan at the four sometimes when he wants to go small ball with three guards. The, the possibilities are limitless, and the possibilities are limitless because this new front office put together a pretty flexible and interesting and lethal in a lot of different ways kind of roster. 
So when it comes to Kobe, he was a guy that I really liked coming into the NBA when I was, you know, covering the draft. We cover the draft often on this podcast. The only thing I'm afraid of with him is that I think he could take a leap, but I'm not sure if he'll get more opportunity this year because the Bulls are just deeper. Yeah, that's going to be really interesting to see when he comes back. And if he's still on the same timeline recovering from that shoulder surgery, we're looking at maybe, you know, early to mid-December at best. And what will Billy Donovan's rotation look like while he's still on the mend? Obviously, you're going to see pretty heavy minutes for Alex Caruso. He might be the first guy off the bench. Um, And then where does Kobe fit in when he's available? I'm not sure, man. I do think that Kobe can provide some excellent scoring punch for that second unit this upcoming season. We know that the can Kobe White be an NBA point guard experiment pretty much flamed out. Like, to his credit, he did look better when they went and got him an all-star big man to throw the ball to. Because, you know, when he and Vooch had some opportunity to play together on the back end of the season, Kobe looked better in those playmaking roles and scenarios because he wasn't passing to Wendell Carter Jr., a six-foot-nine guy who can't catch basketballs and is afraid to look at the basket. He was passing to Vooch, an all-star big man. So I do still think that there could be some potential for Kobe to turn into a more well-rounded combo guard, so to speak. But I think that undeniably right now, his best role is a off-the-ball threat, a catch-and-shoot off-the-ball threat. And yes, sometimes letting him get out and run in transition, because there aren't many people in the NBA, I think, that can that are Kobe size that can go baseline to baseline faster than he does. That's true. He's, he's lethal in transition. So if he puts his head down and goes, he can be dangerous. But other than that, he is much more so a shooting guard than a point guard right now. So where will that fit in when, when Billy Donovan says, okay, Kobe, you're ready to go and here's where you are? Honestly, and especially if the Bulls are doing well, if the Bulls are above 500 and, and playing well and Billy's comfortable with the rotation he has when Kobe comes back, that'll be really curious to see where he tries to fit Kobe in. But again, you can never have too many shooters on the floor. You can have never have too many shooters in your rotation. The The other worry with Kobe is when you put him back in there, if you take Caruso minutes away to give Kobe white minutes, your defense is taking a hit, like plain and simple. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned his speed. That was the first thing I noticed about him when I was watching him. He is a big guard. I mean, I was a big guard as well. So watching him and seeing the speed that he plays at was really impressive. He moves like a smaller guard. Yeah, yeah. You forget that he's actually – I think he's listed like 6'5". Um, yeah. And and he moves like a guard who's six foot. forget it, six right. foot nothing. Right, so, exactly, exactly. You know, if, if they can find opportunities – and th- that is another thing that's going to be exciting to watch this season is this Bulls team get out and run. Like, obviously, they're going to have certain situations where either DeRozan or Vooch will slow it down on the offensive end and, you know, operate with a little bit more prodding and, and, you know, some pick and roll and, you know, throw the ball into Vooch, let him work in the post. But when you talk about Lonzo, Zach Levine, Kobe White, even some of these other role players that we've seen who love to get up and down the floor, Troy Brown Jr. loves to run. Uh, the, the kid, Marco Samanovic, who we got our first look at in Summer League, you know, probably a back end of the rotation, if that, but that guy looks like he loves to run the floor and transition. So I, I'm looking forward to seeing the Bulls hopefully get some solid uh, contributions on a nightly basis from fast break points and transition opportunities. The, the one key there is 
you got to get stops on the defensive end first. So, some flashbacks to the 90s game, the 90s Bulls playing in transition. Can we see some of that again? <laughs> right? One, one of the best defensive basketball units I've ever seen. I mean, come on. MJ, Ron Harper, Scotty, and Rodman. Yeah. yeah. That was that was great. Forget about that it. was great. I actually I actually want to get to some vintage Bulls, but before that, realistic expectations for the Bulls this season. I think I'm putting them right now somewhere between 42 and 45 wins. Okay. I think that that's I think that that's optimistically fair. Yes. While while also realizing that just because you added talent doesn't automatically just start stacking wins for you. You got to mesh. You got to build some chemistry, and you got to close games. Now, you know, I mentioned it before, the Bulls lost a lot of close winnable games last season. If they can cut into that number of games that they give away instead of games that they win, and they build some chemistry with all these new pieces, I think it's fair to say that an, a, a slightly above 500 uh, final, you know, 82-game record is, is within fair expectations for this team. But you have to realize that, look, a lot of teams in the East got better too. This offseason, the East is, I don't think, as much of a laugh it off kind of conference compared to what it was even a handful of years ago. There are some teams in the East that I think had pretty poor offseasons. Like, you know, I'm pretty confident that Cleveland will not be a problem. You know, everybody's excited about their their draft and the fact that they also have, you know, Jeremy Grant. But I, I would be shocked and appalled if the Bulls aren't better than the Pistons this season. So, you should be able to stack up some wins by playing those, you know, central division teams a lot, you know, beat Cleveland every night you play them, beat the Pistons every night you play them, and then just win more of the winnable games that you coughed up last season. And I think, you know, that starts creeping up to 40 plus wins pretty quickly. If you, if you do that kind of math. Okay. So let's get to some vintage Bulls basketball. There it is. Part one of my conversation with Matt. Be on the lookout for part two of our conversation where we discuss 90s Bulls basketball. Can't wait for you all to hear that one. Big shouts to Matt for joining in. And thank you to everyone who listens to Combos Court across the globe. Punch down on that subscribe button if you haven't already. And share this episode with a friend. Share it on social media, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Share it on your IG stories. And tag me at 1-2-Combo. That's O-N-E. T-W-O-C-O-M-B-O on Instagram. Be on the lookout for part two of this conversation. Combo out.